thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. My penalty was not good enough. It should have gone in. But I will never apologise for what I am and where I came from. I am Marcus Rashford. 23-year-old black man from Withington and Withenshaw, South Manchester. If I have nothing else, I have that. Marcus Rashford's dignified response to the racist abuse he received on social media after missing a penalty in the Euro 2020 final is humbling. And he wasn't the only penalty taker of colour to get it in the neck. Following the responses to England's defeat, we thought it would be timely to talk about how it feels to be black and British more than 70 years after Windrush. We touched on some of this a year ago, but it's definitely worth reflecting on the issues today. Here's James Simpkins speaking on the Naked Reflections podcast, Inclusivity. Where I'm from in London, like, it's a very sort of diverse area. Strangely, my school had no white students, my sixth form. To, uh, to, be, to be specific, sorry. Um, which is strange in England, obviously, but it, it, that was how it was for me. So it was, it was like I didn't have to think about my heritage, really, until I came to Cambridge. Welcome back to Naked Reflections, Dr. Kenny Monrose, fellow at Wolfson College, Cambridge, and author of the book Black Men in Britain. Kenny is also leading the Black British Voices Project. Too much talk and not enough action is Kenny's mantra. Joining him is Dr. Julian Hargreaves, Director of Research here at the Wolf Institute. Julian is an advisor to the Black British Voices Project and was also lead researcher on the Wolf Diversity Study, which surveyed more than 11,000 adults and their attitudes to diversity and published its report in 2020. James, in our clip, was prompted to think about his heritage when he came to Cambridge But Kenny, I know you're highly sceptical of the ever-changing labels that are trotted out. How do you think the identity question should be best addressed? I think the best way to address this issue of identity, particularly in terms of Britishness, is to really consult people, ask the people that are being labelled and classified within these brackets how they want to be defined. You know, consult these people and give them a bit of a bit of agency as the classification that's going to be attached to. My big bugbear is if you look at black people in Britain, every 10 years there seems to be a new designation attached to them. So in the 50s, we're coloreds. In the 60s, we're, we're black. 70s, West Indians. Then it's Afro-Caribbean, BME, BAME. It was even urban at one point. So 
you know, really we need to consult with these communities and ask them what they think is the best way that they should be defined. And that presumably is what the Black British Voices Project is all about, is it? Absolutely. The Black British Voices Project, believe it or not, 2021 is the first time a comprehensive study is being conducted looking at Black British lifestyles, views and attitudes. And it gives Black British people the autonomy to define themselves for themselves. Time like something like this happened. Julian, how do you approach this question of terminology then? I think I can understand most of Kenny's points. I think most recently there has been a big public debate around use of the label BAME, Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic. And the survey done last year by an organisation called Sporting Equals found that many people consider the term to be insulting, not just sort of merely problematic, but actually insulting. As a, as a white researcher, I'm not going to pretend I know what it's like to be labelled with the BAME tag, but I can imagine that at the heart of the issue, of course, is the fact that hardly anybody labelled with the BAME tag would label themselves with that, would identify themselves. So the problem really is that it's a a label used by observers on, on other groups. But I have to say, just to sort of complicate the discussion a little bit, most of the negative attitudes towards the label BAME has implied that it's always applied by majority groups or by government bodies. And actually, if you look back at the history of the labels BME and BAME, they've often been used by groups who are engaged with anti-racism. One example is is the Young Review from, uh, from a few years ago now, 2014. Um, Baroness Young, herself a black politician, Uh, used the term when describing problems faced by black and Muslim prisoners. So I think often the labels have been used in good faith, but obviously times change and attitudes change. And uh, it's right now that we're having a, a debate around it. Kenny, how would you respond to that point? Because language is fluid, isn't it? And there's a certain amount where words tend to have different nuances as time goes on. But what have you uncovered so far in in the survey work that you've done? And and what terms would you feel would be most appropriate when we're talking about the black communities? Well, it's a fair point that Julian made, you know, particularly in terms of identity politics. It's in flux. You know, the terms are, are up for grabs. They're revolving. They're fluid. But I think the the response that that I received from the focus groups conducted at the early onset of the project was that these terms were lazy, they were clumsy, and they conflated all of the experiences of non-white communities in Britain together. So I just think it's really simple. I think we need to speak to these communities and you know maybe that's a precursor to when we go into our research or part of our research ask people what they want to be called because there's a lot of people that we've spoken to that are happy with black british some people want to put all bits of their lineage in there some people want to be defined as nigerian british some want to be west indian black british you know there's a there's a host of of different terms that, that, that are out there but The important thing for me is to speak to people and ask people what they want to be labelled as. So we live in a time when it feels more important for people to be able to label themselves and for other people to label them. 
I can perfectly understand why a term like Black British would be way more popular than something like BAME. There have been surveys in the past which have asked people to um, to label themselves with an ethnic identity. And back in 2001, it's quite a well-known survey called People, Families and Community Survey. And they asked people to, to self-identify with, with an ethnic group, so to label themselves. And about one in five people of Pakistani heritage labelled their ethnicity as Muslim. So it's, a, it's an interesting example of the ways in which, A, the sort of barriers between the different types of groups are quite are quite fluid, quite porous, but also the ways in which when people are asked to identify themselves, all kinds of much more interesting ideas and concepts emerge. And Ken is right that the use of labelling can be lazy. I also think it can be useful, though. And I think that, you know, again, coming back to the, the BAME and BME, I think that the label of black has often been used um, politically, certainly was in the 60s and 70s. And I think I think the BAME label came out of a desire for people who weren't black but felt politically connected to black communities to be able to have a little more agency and a little more visibility within those debates. And obviously now it's, that attitude has changed. Even though labels fall out of favour, I think it's important to, to remember their origins and that more often than not, they were used in good faith at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Black Voices project? Um, it's been described as trying to put right a narrative that's gone wrong. Do you feel comfortable with that? Not particularly, because that presupposes that the narrative was right in the first place. And I don't think it ever was. I think the, the representation of black people in Britain has, has often been myopic. It's been narrow and been misrepresented. I think what we need to do is, is speak to black people and get their opinions, get their views, get their experiences logged so they can define what their lifestyles are like, opposed to people who just look at black people determine what what their experience are. So once we've got that, Kenny, because it sounds like it's an incredibly diverse picture. You've talked yourself about the different groups identifying themselves as black and British or Nigerian and British and all, all, all of these different terms. There's a natural human tendency, isn't there, to try and simplify it. Otherwise, we'll never finish a sentence. And it's not specifically about black people. It could be about any group. How would you advise someone to do that? And I suppose a, an adjunct question for Julian is, is what do we gain and lose when focusing on one group? But start with you, Kenny. What advice would you give to people who are trying to uh, understand in relatively straightforward terms this community? Talk to people, engage with people, take time out to sit down and and reason like what we often do, what the Wolf Institute does, which is a, a significant part of sociological research or any research. Get to sit down and speak to people to understand their reality. I'm taken to white allyship. I get that. And I've often come across white people have asked me, you know, what books should we read to learn about Caribbean lifestyle, West Indian lifestyle in, in this country? And, you know, these books have been written 30, 40 years ago. All the information is out there. You know, you just really need to make the effort, acknowledge that you don't know as much as you could know and make that effort to, to do that um, investigation yourself. You know, Kenny, what you're saying is, is music to my ears because I say that to my students all the time about different communities, whether they're learning about Jews or Muslims or of any, any faith community, for example, that the best way of, of understanding them is to encounter 
to cross the threshold to meet. But Julian, what about the sort of strengths and weaknesses of focusing on one group? So really the biggest strength, I think, of Kenny's work is that you get this really rich picture built from the bottom up with a collection of accounts of daily life, social interactions, attitudes, experiences, behaviours, told in summary form on a survey, but told by the people themselves. And that provides a really valuable opportunity to break beyond some of the stereotypes. I think if there's a limitation, then I hope it's one that the Black British Voices Project will overcome. Which, And I think the limitation is that when you focus exclusively on one group, you tend to lose opportunities for um, comparative work. Now, I know that Kenny's sort of got around that a little bit by choosing questions for the survey that have been asked by other surveys. So there will be an opportunity to compare experiences and attitudes within the Black British population with those elsewhere. But I'd say that's probably the, the biggest challenge to overcome. And actually, maybe this is an indirect question to Kenny, but I wonder if, if at the beginning of the project there was a conversation about whether isolating a group for study risks segregating that group in the minds of, of other people. I wonder if that's a, a challenge that had to be overcome by the project team. It's not something really that jumped out at me because, you know, we're doing something different. We're speaking to black people. The project does what it says on the can, right? We're looking to speak to black people. Now, this idea of, I think you're alluding to self-selecting, that, that type of strategy. I wouldn't look at it like that. I would call it co-producing because normally researchers, you know, they gain kudos and they gain awards for looking at disadvantaged communities. What this project has tried to do by isolating is give agency to the participants. So, you know, we realign that power dynamic that happens in that engagement between researcher and respondent and participant. I wouldn't consider it problematic as, as such. We've been clear. We said we're doing something unprecedented. We're going to be speaking to black people about their experiences. Yeah, I'm persuaded by that. I think there's certainly room for these studies of you know single groups and single populations. I know that British Jewish communities have, have long taken the benefit of these sort of targeted studies. And to, to a lesser but increasing extent, I think British Muslim communities are now benefiting from that very sort of rich uh, interaction which these surveys can provide. And Kenny's use of the concept of co-production is probably key there. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Kenny Monrose and Julian Hargreaves. And we're discussing what it means to be black and British. Let's go back to James Simpkins, whom we heard from at the top of the podcast. James made it from his London school to Pembroke College, Cambridge. It makes you second guess a lot of things. Like I'll be walking around town and someone's staring at me. I'm like, is it, is it because of this? Is it because of that? Do I look weird? So um, I, can't, I can't really say what some, I can't, you know, you can't say what someone's thinking, but being very in a space where you're very different, it makes you second guess almost every interaction. It's very, it's very confusing. In our clip, James spoke of his experience of education, which was relatively benign. That's, of course, not true for the Windrush generation as a whole. Tell us a little bit about your research uh, on that Windrush generation. Well, today we're recording on Windrush Day, which is very fitting. First thing for people to remember is that 
the Windrush arrivals, they, they were the embodiment of respectability and propriety. We just have to look at the, the show reels to see the way they were attired. And they were equipped with high Edwardian and Victorian values, which really pivoted education at the centre of their lifestyles. It was all about being educated and having high um, educational aspirations for their children. However, what was missed was the regimes that happened in the, the British schooling system that didn't really equip their children with the level of education that they expected to happen. Now, if we remember or we reflect on the work of Boynton had called back in 1971, who spoke about West Indian children in the classroom being considered educational subnormal, this is something that is continuing within the debate of how the, the Windrush children suffered within educational governance and within the institutions of, of education at the time. We look at the Swan Report and the Rampton Reports from 1981 and 1985, and we see some of those findings from the, those reports are very, you know, they're very disturbing because what actually happened is that black children ended up occupying a lower social status than their parents did when they when their parents first arrived, which is a harsh indictment on the British educational system. Now, this had a lasting ramification in, in terms of employment and em employability. And, you know, people will say, what about the white working class? They suffered the same types of disparities and disadvantages as well. But working class white students had networks in place that could lead them into employment. They had fathers who could turn them onto a, a job opportunity or uncles or grandfathers or so on and so forth. The black students didn't have that opportunity. And that leads into a different area emerging where we see that a lot of black students who were put outside of the employment market through being excluded from school and, and such the like, drifted into criminality and deviant behaviour. Is that why, Kenny, you talked in your work about the invisibility of black men in that they just weren't there to the majority, as well as being prejudiced against? This term I've used, they consider themselves to be invisible and irrelevant, is how they, how they define themselves. Yes, to some sensibilities it sounded harsh, but they considered themselves being invisible in terms of education, in the education settings, invisible in political debate, invisible within administrative branches of the criminal justice system. They were irrelevant and invisible within management structures, be it business or, or leisure. And Ed and Julian, we're all of the same type of vintage. You know, think back to the 70s and 80s and look, what was the representation of black people in the media, for example? That just just wasn't there. So, you know, we had Stuart Hall on the TV, but he was on the TV three, four o'clock in the morning. Okay? If you wanted to see a, a, a black British film, it would be on at midnight or after midnight on a Tuesday or a Wednesday evening. There was nothing there that represented us outside of, I don't know, World of Sport on a Saturday afternoon with wrestling with Johnny Quango and whoever else. Or maybe football, you know, you'd see people like Vince Hillier, Clyde Best and, and Bob Hazel. But in terms of mainstream media, they were invisible. They were considered irrelevant. And, you know, that shouldn't be ignored.
No, I think that's right. I remember going to football matches and you'd see the occasional player like Clyde Best of West Ham. But then the abuse that black footballers received was so obvious when you were standing and watching a game. It was the lack of public space that was afforded to black people in that time frame. Unofficial colour bars were still very much in place. So we talk about pubs and the way that the pub for British culture is an extension of their front room. You know, we look at the soap operas that we see on TV and they're all centred around pubs and black people weren't allowed in them spaces. And I think there's an extension of that to talk about the ways in which patterns of um, public space, particularly outdoor space, developed over that time. You might argue that that had an implication for perceived criminality because as patterns of usage of outdoor space persuaded police forces that these groups were hanging about on the streets for criminal purposes. So there's a nice link up there between Kenny's talk about pubs. Because there's lack of public spaces or private spaces for for black youth to occupy, you see them on the street, as, as Julian said, and you see the development of these front lines, which are spaces that are just typified for criminality. But the church came along and the churches, regardless of the denomination, gave spaces for those youths to occupy. So the youth clubs were really within the churches. The state didn't provide any spaces for black youth. It was the church that did that. And that role of the church as providing sort of a mixture of public and private space, if you like, is very much at the forefront of a lot of architects' thoughts about public-private space right now. Because there's so many space that's public that's actually owned privately. And I know that um, the the latest Venice Biennale, the British Pavilion, is looking at exactly that, Kenny, uh, the issue of private public space and places like pubs, public toilets, places where you share, but it's not, is that is that very, very interesting mix. Julian, in, in your research, one of the areas that interests me is the way you've identified generational shifts, particularly your work with Muslim communities, of course. But I'm wondering whether there's anything there that you've unpacked in terms of generational shifts and um, the black communities? Well, actually, it's something I've picked up from Kenny's book, uh, Black Men in Britain. In the book, Kenny, you write about the way in which some of the Windrush and post-Windrush generations looked back at the West Indies for their politics and religion and the culture that goes with both of those things. And I think if I'm right, I hope I'm not uh, misquoting you, but you imply that sometimes there's a bit of a, a misleading idea that these generations looked towards America and, and the sort of US civil rights movement, when in fact they were much more likely to look towards Masfarian ideas, Marcus Garvey and politics you know, emanating more often from, from Africa. And, and I wondered, in terms of a generational shift, it, it would seem as a, as a layman of an outside observer that the focus is now much more firmly on the American context when it comes to politics, particularly politics of anti-racism. And, and I wondered if you've noticed that shift. And I wondered if, if you could say something about why you think that shift in focus happened from the West Indies to the United States. I mean, there's a couple of things there that need unpacking. I think in terms of religion, the impact of religion on black communities is very potent. You know, religion acted as a social stabiliser for the incoming. It healed the sting of racism that they experienced. 
And that was for the Rune Rush Revivals, you know, as I said, equipped with this Victorian and, and Edwardian values, strong religious instruction. But I think their children questioned religion and their lives in a different way than their forebears did. And you speak about Rastafari. Rastafari was, uh, you know, the, the real import of Rastafari in Britain, as far as I saw it, was in the 1970s when those black British youth couldn't exactly identify with Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement in America, because we didn't have a civil rights movement. So they really were, were, were shaped by their heritage in the West Indies, looking to the West Indies to provide, you know, some sort of answers to their liberty over here. And this was all informed by music and all, all that kind of stuff that was going around at the time. A lot of the lyrics within reggae music, which was popular for black British youth at the time, you know, it was protest informative music. It was anti-capitalist music. And it spoke about, you know, questioning religion, questioning, you know, what your preachers was telling you, what the pastor was telling you, what the priest was telling you. So, yes, that prompted a generational shift. And I look at it in three phases. I think the Windrush generation, they came with a five-year plan to make some money and then go back home. And they survived the racism that they encountered. They just, they just survived it. It was part and parcel of being a newly arrived immigrant, so-called for them. I think the post-Windrush generation, is what, what the book speaks about, they resisted racism. Hence, we see the, the social upheavals in places like Brixton and St. Paul's and Toxteth and so on and so forth. But I think this generation now, the grandchildren of the Windrush arrivals, I think they're fighting racism. They're mobilised, they're politicised. They're trying to establish a lasting legacy to um, fight against racism. You know, initiatives like decolonising the curriculum and stuff like that. They're actually trying to put pillars in place that will last, that will have some sort of continuity. So there are definitely generational shifts going on. One of the questions that's asked in the interviews is what's more important, your race or your religion? And what we're finding now is that race is eclipsing faith. That wouldn't have happened before. The term religion is, is being substituted for spirituality as well. So people are considering their spirituality less important than their actual race. Their race is what is more important to them. And that is something that didn't happen with the Windrush arrivals or with, with their children. That's so interesting, Kenny, because I've noticed in the training of Christian clergy, of whom I, I guess about a quarter of my students are going into the church of one type or another, um, and a big increase in the number of black students compared to ordinands compared to 20 years ago. And the sort of battle they have to navigate their way through the church system and bureaucracy and so on. And I'm just wondering whether in your survey, those who are religious and identify particularly with the church, whether they're seeing some progress there as well or whether it's yet another brick wall. That's an interesting line for investigation. I haven't specifically looked at that as such, but what I have noticed is that society is becoming increasingly secular. But with the, the, the people that I'm speaking to, particularly the middle-aged grouping, they don't go to church anymore unless it's a funeral or a wedding or something like that. And a lot of them have said, you know, 
they've been challenged in terms of the instruction they received in terms of religion in growing up. Because that religion, that religion practice that they had didn't question anything to do with their position in society. But when they spoke about race amongst themselves, they had some more, you know, usable answers that they could apply to their lives. And that mantra that I, I gave to you, Kenny, at the beginning of the program, uh, too much talk and not enough action, is that accurate? And what action would you, as we come towards the end of this show, recommend? I don't think too much talk is a bad thing. I think we need to continue talking. I think that's the way we get stuff done, yeah? We need to sit down and reason and, and thrash things out. And this is a, you know, a common mantra. We have to be comfortable about having uncomfortable conversations. And I think that's what it takes, particularly in terms of when we're dealing with race. And welcome and embrace white allyship because none of us are beyond race, right? So we we need to get together and carry on speaking, talking, debating, arguing even. And then hopefully, out of these measured debates that we have, we can, you know, work out a strategy. There we have it. Thanks to my guests, Kenny Monrose and Julian Hargreaves, and thank you for listening. You know where to find us, and we'd love to hear from you at Naked Reflections. Our back catalogue of discussions, more than 80 episodes, is there for you to dip into. Have a listen to all our podcasts at the Wolf Institute, and there are plenty of podcasts at Naked Scientists too. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.